0: Great. I invite you to take your Bibles and open it up to Luke 1, that passage that was read for us earlier. We're going to be looking at verses 26 to 38. If you don't have a Bible, there's some in the seatbacks in front of you. You could find one there, and if you're using that Bible, check page 723, because I believe that's where you'll find Luke chapter 1. We're going to be in Luke for the rest of this year and well into next year as following the, the story of Jesus as told by Luke. So in this passage this morning, often called the Annunciation, um, which tells the story of the angel coming to Mary. Um, my thought is that if this passage describes the true meaning of Christmas, then it makes you wonder if Christmas ever really came. Now, I'm not questioning whether the Virgin Mary really had a little baby named Jesus. There are plenty of people who do doubt that Mary was really a virgin, and and a few who even doubt whether a man named Jesus actually lived. But but those claims of a historical Jesus and a virgin birth, exceptional as they are, pale, I think, in audacity compared to the other amazing Christmas claims made in this passage. I'm thinking especially... Of verses 32 and 33, the promises and the claims that the angel makes about Jesus to Mary. And when you add up all these claims, you have to wonder if Christmas ever really came. I mean, let's look at them. First, the angel tells Mary that her baby Jesus will be great. Great. Let's think about those who are considered great. Mary lived in a time when Alexander the Great was still a recent memory. Alexander was a guy who conquered the Western world by the time he was 30 years old. Talk about an early achiever. He almost single-handedly also spread Greek ideas and Greek culture throughout the Western world, forever leading Western culture in the direction which makes it what it is today. No wonder they call him Alexander the Great. Then there was Caesar Augustus. He was emperor when the angel announced Jesus's birth to Mary. This Caesar was great. He was ruler of the entire Western world. He was author of the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Augustus was so great that they commonly referred to him as the divine savior who has brought peace to the world. And who is great today? Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, Sam Walton, uh, Mariano Rivera, uh, the U.S. presidents, other heads of state. They have money. They have power. They are famous. They have notoriety. But the baby born to marry, well, he never had much money. He never founded a business or ran a country or conquered an empire. He never broke any world records. He... In most of the history books hardly gets a mention but the angel said he would be great it makes you wonder if Christmas really came next the angel tells Mary that her son will be called son of the Most High now this was a title given to Hebrew Kings for example in 2nd Samuel 7 14 and you uh, if you have your Bible you might want to look there and keep a finger in there well Be looking there a little bit later as well. 2 Samuel 7.14, if you can find that in a hurry. In that passage, God promises King David that he was going to have a son who would be the future king of Israel. And um, God said to David there, I will be his father and he will be my son. To be God's son, to be uh, the son of the Most High, the Most High's son, For the Hebrew people meant to be the one whom God anointed and approved to be king over God's people, Israel. But last time I checked, when Jesus got to Jerusalem, Israel's capital city, instead of accepting him as their king, they crucified him. They dressed him up like a king in royal robes and a crown of thorns as a cruel joke. And then they nailed him to a cross. Jesus never got to be King. Now I know, I know what you're thinking, but Jesus is a spiritual King. He he reigns in heaven. He, he rules in our hearts. But, but what does that really mean? And does that really do justice to what the angel is promising Mary here? I mean, look at what the angel promises next, that God will give Mary's son the throne of his father, David. Now, that sounds pretty concrete and down to earth to me. David had a throne. It was made of gold or fine stone or whatever they made it of. And it was in a palace in Jerusalem. And David reigned on it. David had armies. David had regional administrators. David had a real kingdom, just like Alexander the Great, just like Caesar Augustus. Did Jesus ever have that? I mean, when when David was your king, if the enemies attacked you, David would come out with a real army and and protect you. And if someone did you wrong, you could go to Jerusalem to state your case, and David or one of his officials would hear your case and give you justice. David was, was a real king, and the angel promises Mary here that her son would sit on David's throne. But Jesus never had a kingdom like that. Sure, we can say he's a spiritual king, that he reigns in our hearts, uh, the hearts of his followers, but that doesn't seem so real or helpful when extremists blow up your church, or your government uses chemical weapons on on its people, or the economy goes all berserk, or your government causes you to lose your health care. The angel seems to be promising Mary here a real hands-on helpful king a protector, a liberator, one to right wrongs and to provide justice. It makes you wonder if Christmas ever really came. Finally, the angel promises Mary that her son will reign over Jacob's descendants, God's people forever and that his kingdom will never end forever. Never end. That's a mighty long time. That's a strong, stable kingdom. That's a king who's drinking from the fountain of youth. Or something better. Where is this king who is supposed to reign forever? When did or does his reign begin? Well, as we grapple with these questions, it's helpful to realize that all the promises that the angel is making to Mary here are allusions to Old Testament prophecies. I already mentioned the promise um, from 2 Samuel 7.14. If you still have your finger there, uh, look up two verses earlier in verses 12 and 13 of 2nd Samuel 7 where God goes on to promise David I will raise up your offspring to succeed you and I will establish in verse 13 the throne of his kingdom forever and then think also uh, Isaiah 9 verse 7 is another such promise and a lot of us know it it's read often during this time of year There, Isaiah prophesies, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Sounds like a real earthly kingdom to me. And I'm sure it did to Mary, too. Does it make you wonder if Christmas ever really came? This all reminds me of a a song lyric, as so many things do, uh, by U2's Bono. Um, He's reflecting on the biblical Christmas promise that Christ would come to be king and would bring peace on earth, as that Isaiah verse said. And and he complains, we hear it every Christmas time, but hope and history won't rhyme. So what's it worth, this peace on earth? Because there isn't peace on earth, is there? The hungry are not fed. The naked are not clothed. The oppressed do not get justice. The wicked are not restrained. The righteous do not always get rewarded. It makes you wonder if Christmas really came. But there is one hint in this passage which gives me hope that Christmas did in fact come. And that hint is found in the identity of this young woman, Mary. You know, we're so familiar with the Virgin Mary with her serene look and the soft airbrushed hallmark glow around her that it's easy to forget who this girl really was. And how absolutely strange it is that the angel Gabriel came to her to make all these outrageous Christmas promises. I can think of at least five reasons that Mary was not qualified to have anything to do with these promises. First, Mary was from Nazareth, a small town in Galilee. Mary was not from Rome, the capital of the Western world. Mary was not from Ephesus or Alexandria or another important city in the world at that time. Mary wasn't even from Jerusalem, the religious capital of the Jews, where God's temple stood and where David's throne sat empty. No, Mary was from nowhere important, from a small town out in the country, and she wasn't even from a respectable small town. In the Gospel of John, when a guy named Nathaniel heard that Jesus was from Nazareth, his immediate reaction was, Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Nazareth? You see, not only was Nazareth nowheresville, not only did it have a reputation for being on the wrong side of the tracks, but it was from Galilee, which was often called at that time Galilee of the Gentiles, as it is in Isaiah 9, if you read that whole chapter. Galilee of the Gentiles was a derogatory term, because you see, lots of pagan, unclean Gentiles lived in Galilee, so much so that it got this name, this nickname. From a Jewish perspective, Galilee was like Sin City. It was a sleazy place full of the wrong kind of people. That's where Mary was from. That's where the angel had to go to find her. Second, Mary was female. Now, I realize that that's racist, and I'm not defending the people of that time, but that was their mentality back then. God, we're going to see, is about to change that. But as far as people back then were concerned, males were better and more important than females. Men held property, men had status, men had legal rights and standing. Meanwhile, single women were the property of their fathers until they got married and became the property of their husbands. So, in that culture, what everyone would want to know about this story is why is the angel even talking to Mary? He should be talking to her father mary was not anybody because she was female third mary was young based on the age that most jewish girls got married at that time scholars figured that she was probably 12 or 13 years old she was a junior high girl and in that culture people valued age A head of white hair was a crown of honor. Old people had experience. Old people had wisdom. Elders were valued. But Mary had none of this. An older woman in that culture at least had status and honor through her husband and through her role as a mother. But Mary at this point is a nobody. In the eyes of her culture, she's just a child waiting to become somebody. She has nothing to offer except to help her mom fetch firewood or water and cook the lentils. Fourth, Luke highlights what I've been saying further by by telling us nothing about Mary's family or pedigree. In that culture, if Luke wanted us to think Mary was a somebody, despite her hometown and her gender and her age, he'd at least have told us what tribe she was from and who her father was. After all, Luke tells us those things about the other major characters thus far in the story. So far, if you read Luke 1, you see that we've met Elizabeth, who we've been told is a descendant of Aaron. She's of a priestly lineage. And we're told that Elizabeth is righteous. She keeps the law blamelessly, as does her husband. And she's married to Zechariah, who's also a descendant of Aaron and a priest from the division of Abijah. Now, all of this may not mean much to us, but for people back then, this was a serious pedigree. Zachariah and Elizabeth are somebodies, Luke is telling us. They have significant religious credentials. They are married, they are old, they are respected. Then we meet Joseph, to whom Mary will one day be married. And we learn that he's a descendant of David. He's got credentials too. He's from the royal family. The the family from whom one day God's king would come, in fact. Zechariah, Elizabeth, Joseph, they all have impeccable resumes. They've got credentials, but not Mary. Luke tells us nothing about her. No details, no background, no credentials. She's just some girl. Notice Luke doesn't even tell us if Mary is righteous if she's from a family like Zachariah and Elizabeth, who keep God's Torah, because not every uh, family in Galilee did, you can be sure. Luke doesn't tell us if Mary has a good heart or a noble character, which will make her a good mother for this future king. Now we may assume all these things because we know God chose her to be the mother of his own son and because the angel says she's highly favored Highly favored. Let's think about that phrase. We may assume that God favors Mary because of what a good person she is. But that's because we assume God doesn't like people or reward people unless they're really good. Because that's the way we tend to view and treat other people. But read your Bible. The Bible is full of God liking people and choosing people who are not model religious people who are full of faults and shortcomings, and yet God favors them. That's called grace. It's kind of the way that God likes to work. And Luke doesn't give us any good reason that God should favor Mary. In contrast to the other characters in the story, Luke doesn't tell us that God Uh, favors Mary because of where she grew up or who her family was or because she kept God's commands or because of her good heart. No, in fact, what Luke leaves us to conclude is that Mary is completely unqualified for the job. She's got nothing on her resume. No references. As far as Luke tells us, Mary is just some junior high girl from Nazareth. And yet God picks her. God favors her. And God assures her that God will give her everything that she needs. And God can do the same thing for you. Because as a a speaker and writer uh, that I once heard, Todd Wilson, I heard him say, Weakness is the address God shows up at. Isn't that good? Weakness is the address God shows up at in mary's case she she may be weak and unqualified but god will give her continued favor and god will be with her he tells her the angel tells her and that's all she needs to raise god's son to be loved by god and to have god present with her now to top it off consider the fifth reason mary's unqualified to have this child and that is that she's a virgin right she has no way to get pregnant And yet, what does the angel say? The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. God's power will compensate for all of Mary's inabilities and shortcomings. God will create something where there is nothing. God will bring life out of death and emptiness. God will make possible what is impossible. What a promise! And it's only then, after Luke has highlighted Mary's inability and God's total provision, that we get a little insight into Mary's heart. She says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. If this junior high girl has anything going for her, and she does, we find out, it's that she's willing. Willing to trust willing to be used, willing to submit to God's purposes. All right, so let's step back and consider the implications of all this and what it has to do with whether Christmas came. Well, God announces that he's bringing into the world his long-awaited king, a great king who will rule as God's son, who will rule on David's throne and have an unending kingdom. What a king, what a kingdom. It seems too good to be true. But who does God pick to bring this king into the world? Well, God picks a nobody, just some girl from the wrong part of town who has nothing to offer as far as we can tell, but who's willing to be used. That, I think, is the clue to understanding how it is that Christmas has actually come. Because the kingdom that this king came to bring is not the kind of kingdom we're expecting. It's not a high and mighty kingdom that can be judged in terms of power and money and fame. No, it's a kingdom for the likes of Mary. It's a kingdom for those from the wrong zip codes who have the wrong last names, a kingdom for the overlooked a kingdom for the unqualified it's an upside down kingdom and that's why it's hard to see that it has really come that Jesus really is a great king that Jesus really is the one God chose to rule over God's people and to sit on David's throne and rule over a kingdom which will never end do you hear though that this is a real kingdom not just a metaphor not just a a wistful spiritual feeling in our hearts listen again to Isaiah's words of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end and his or he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever this is a real kingdom So why is there little so little evidence for it on Wall Street and Capitol Hill and in the UN and on the six o'clock news? Well, not so much because it's spiritual as in its misty and unreal, but rather because it's an upside down kingdom. It's a kingdom for people like Mary, a kingdom for the unlikely and the undeserving. Now, how can this be? How can a kingdom be so great and so expansive and so enduring when it's based on weakness and even obscurity? Well, because God loves to turn things upside down. To turn the wisdom of the wise to foolishness. To show the poverty of a life of riches. And the richness of a life of poverty. To show the weakness of the powerful. And the way that God's power can be made perfect in weakness. And all of this is very real in the world today. If you have eyes to see. Sure, there's a a spiritual dimension to Christ's kingdom in the sense that Jesus, the king is in heaven and is present with us only spiritually. But the fact that our king is, is present in another place and not here does not make his kingdom any less real any less than you are real and I am real any less than our relationships are real and our choices are real and our efforts and actions for the kingdom are real let me give you an example when I lived in Budapest Hungary I had a friend named Stacy and uh, Stacy was very articulate and intelligent and she, she was a talented leader and my second year in Hungary, Stacy became the country director of the organization that we were with. And she did a great do- job. She organized great retreats for us teachers. She motivated the other leaders who were under her. And, and when problems or crises came up, she handled them with great wisdom. And, and everybody liked Stacy. But I'm, I'm not aware that she had any particular deep impact on anyone in a really personal sort of way until one day at a retreat. And this retreat happened the following year. By this time, Stacy was no longer living in, in uh, Hungary. She'd gone back to the U.S. because she'd been promoted to be the director of, of all the teaching programs that our organization had in Europe, throughout Europe. And, and Stacy's transition back to the states to take on this new role had been very hard for her. She uh, had a lot of trouble working with and getting along with the organization's president, who was her new boss. Um, and, and she faced challenges in her new role, which were over her head. By the time Stacy came back to Hungary to visit us teachers that fall and to um, to speak at our, our teachers' retreat. She was a broken woman. And as she spoke to us in our, our worship time together, she, she broke down in tears as she described how difficult things were for her and, and what it was like for her to find God in the midst of her failure and shortcomings. And I don't remember many of the details of what she said that day, but I'll never forget the way her, her sobs and, and her stammering words pierced our hearts And how the Holy Spirit fell on our gathering in a palpable way that everyone felt. And and how lives were changed that day. And people were moved to reconcile their relationships. And and to confess sins they'd been holding on to and to turn away from those sins. The King met us that day through Stacy's weakness. Jesus used Stacy in a way that He had never used her while she was strong. And the impact it had on the rest of us was very real because Christ's kingdom is real. Christmas has come after all. Because Christ is great. He is followed today by billions of people in every country of the world. And Christ is son of the most high. He has indeed been anointed by God as the real king over God's people. And Christ does now sit on David's throne, not only over the historic people of Israel, but over every nation of the earth. In every nation, there are communities of people who obey this king who follow the leading of his spirit and carry out his commands and instructions. For example, they love their enemies. They forgive those who sin against them. And in the power of their king, they work for peace. They comfort the hurting. They feed the hungry and clothe the naked. They seek justice for the oppressed. They help captives be set free and they proclaim the good news about their king and as a result lives are changed and people are reconciled to God and people start to follow the king and to join his kingdom and his kingdom will never end until it has overcome all other kingdoms it is a real kingdom but don't look for it in terms of the trappings of power or influence because it's an upside-down kingdom, a kingdom for people like Mary. You'll find it thriving in small and unexpected places and among unlikely and unqualified people. And you'll find it often advances through weakness and failure. So here's the question. Are you part of this king's kingdom? Have you given your allegiance to this King? To do this, you you begin by following Mary's example, but by being willing, by submitting to the King, by trusting him, by saying, I'm the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Christmas has indeed come, has it come for you If you'd like prayer this morning, maybe because you're in a place of weakness and you need the king's kingdom in your life. Or maybe because you want to tell Jesus this morning that you want to be part of his kingdom or or recommit yourself to being part of his kingdom. If you go into the lounge this morning, there will be one or two people in there with little blue um, ribbons on who'd be happy to pray for you. Amen.